The Bible records many great events that took place on highways. For example, the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch took place on a road leading from Jerusalem to Gaza in Acts the 8th chapter, verses 26 through 40. The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to one Saul of Tarsus on the road leading into Damascus in Acts chapter 9. But this study involves the appearance of the resurrected Christ as he appeared to two disciples who were returning home from Jerusalem on the road leading to Emmaus. And beginning there in verse 13, the Bible says, And behold, two of them went the same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. And they talked together about all the things that had happened. You know, no doubt these disciples, these two disciples, and we're going to find that one of these disciples' name is Cleopas, and the other we don't know. The Bible does not record it. Some scholars say that it, was, it could have been Luke, and Luke being the author, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, but Luke being the author that wrote the gospel according to Luke, that it may have been him, but we don't know that at all. We have absolutely no evidence concerning that, and it really doesn't matter. What we do know that does matter is there were two disciples on the same day, and the same day refers back to the events that are described in the very beginning of the chapter. What are the significant events, or what are the significant things about this day? Number one, we know that it's the first day of the week. This was Sunday. And on that morning, early that Sunday morning, the Bible says that Jesus was risen from the dead. Now these two disciples are walking along and they're going about, about this distance between Jerusalem and Emmaus, which I'm told is about seven and three quarters of a mile. And they're walking along and they're speaking about all the things that had happened. You know, I've often wondered about all the events and all of the facts and all of the history and all of the memories and all of the things that happened prior to the time when Jesus was crucified Maybe their minds went back to those times. We can pretty much deduce that their minds went back to the crucifixion, the burial of Jesus Christ. And obviously on this particular day, they're talking about a time when the women had gone to, see the, to the sepulcher only to find that the stone was rolled away and the body of Jesus was not there. But they have absolutely no understanding and no idea that it was because the Lord had risen from the grave. You remember not long ago, I preached in the gospel according to John about some of the miracles that Jesus performed. You remember when Jesus was just prior to the time when, well, actually right after the time that John the Baptist was killed, he was beheaded, and after a proper burial given by the disciples to John the Baptist, you remember that the word gets back to Jesus and Jesus is traveling with his disciples. And as they're traveling along, there are great multitudes of people that were following Jesus. And if you remember, we talked about the idea that there were many that followed Jesus in that day like many do today. Some were curious. Some were looking for something that they could get from Jesus, from the Lord. In fact, the fame of Jesus had spread so much that they knew, that people knew that this was Jesus. This was the one that could actually heal the sick. This was the one that could make a blind man be able to see. And this is one that people were interested in for all manner of reasons. But you remember when Jesus just got through with feeding the 5,000? 
You remember what happened there? After they had gathered up the fragments and the fragments totaled 12 baskets full and there was a surplus of all of the waste there and Jesus was saying, gather it all that none will be wasted. You remember what happens next? Jesus sent away the multitudes of people for one reason, because he feared that there were those that would try to take him by force and make him a king. You know, if you remember, we talked about the idea that Jesus was not afraid physically, the greatest man that ever lived, the Son of God that could perform miracles, having the Holy Spirit without measure. Jesus wasn't afraid that he could resist or, or wouldn't have the ability to resist when they would take him to be king. Jesus knew that even though that there were some of them that really meant well, they would be overcome by this experience of being fed by Jesus Christ when he performed this great miracle. And because of that, with all their good intentions, they would try to make him to be king. And Jesus knew it was not time to be king. Now, I said all that to say this. You remember about a week prior to the time when Jesus was crucified? Jesus is traveling that road that ascended from Jericho up to Jerusalem, some 15 miles or so, that ascended some 3,000 feet. That rough and rocky road that oftentimes at night was rife with robbers. Jesus dealt with someone that walked on the Jericho road one time. You remember that when he gave the parable of the Good Samaritan. This was the road that Jesus traveled, and many Jews traveled that road on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover. That's why they were going there. And many Jews were following along and walking along with Jesus because they were going that way, and they did go that way, or Jews went that way, in order to avoid Samaria because of how they felt about Samaritans. You know, the Jews and those of Samaria didn't worship together. There was great disdain, especially from the Jews' part, toward a Samaritan. Well, Jesus, while passing through Jericho, has a great multitude of people that were following along too. Many of them had absolutely no idea how it would be that Jesus would become the king. Many thought that they could, the Pharisees would, would follow along, and maybe if he was going to be the king, they could get a leg up in the kingdom, so they wanted to stay close to Jesus. Well, these two disciples, there's just no telling all the things that they reflected on as they're walking along on this seven and three quarter of a mile journey on the way to Jerusalem. But I tell you this, I would imagine they thought back on the fact that this was going to be the king. And yet their minds went back to the triumphal entry that Jesus made, not with all the pomp and, and pride of an earthly king. He wouldn't come riding in on a great white horse with a great parade. You remember when Jesus, while coming near Jerusalem, came to Bethany and he sent two disciples into a village. You remember what he said? He said, I want you to go in there and you're going to find a donkey, a colt. You're going to untie him and you're going to bring him to me. And if anybody says, what are you doing? You tell him, the Lord has need of him. And the Bible says that they took a donkey, a foal, a colt of a donkey and brought it to Jesus and they laid their garments on this donkey. That was the saddle that it would have. That's all it would be. And no one had ever sat on the back of this donkey. It was that that Jesus rode into Jerusalem making his triumphal entry. Not the entry that you would think of by way of a king. Maybe their minds went back to the time when Jesus came into Jerusalem and overturned the tables of the money changers when he said, My house shall be called the house of prayer but you've made it a den of thieves. 
Maybe their minds went back to the day of controversy when the enemies of Jesus became bolder than they had ever been. You know, Jesus had many enemies in his short ministry of uh, three years or so. But the enemies of Jesus became so much bolder. And you remember when they tried to test Jesus and tempt Jesus. Jesus knew that. And they asked Jesus the question. They said, why do you or where did you get the authority to say the things that you say? And who gave you that authority? Oh, Jesus wasn't afraid of the question, nor was he afraid of the answer. But Jesus responded in a way that no doubt surprised them. And Jesus says, I'll tell you one thing. I will answer your inquiry, no problem at all. But you're going to answer one of my questions too. The baptism of John, was it of God or was it of man? And the Bible says that these, these individuals, they were not ignorant individuals. They reasoned one with the other and they came to the conclusion, we've got a real problem here. Because if we say that the baptism of John was of God, then they knew that Jesus would say, then why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you obey the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Why, why didn't you listen to John if you knew it was of God? But then the Bible says they realized on the other side, if they would have said that the baptism of John was not of God but of man, it says that they feared the people for many considered John to be a prophet. You know, they weren't afraid that people that, that obeyed the baptism of John were going to physically come after them and harm them. That's not what that's talking about. These were individuals that liked their status among the people. So when it said they feared the people, it means they feared that they would lose their status among the people for many considered John to be a prophet. So they said, we cannot tell. That was the only way that they could answer Every other answer was a lose-lose proposition for them. They said, we cannot tell. And Jesus says, neither tell I you by what authority that I do these things or who gave me this authority. But they absolutely, these two disciples, had to have gone back to the mock trial, to the beatings that Jesus took. This was going to be the king. You know the road that this king took? It took a foot traveling 15 miles up a rough and rocky road. It took a ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And the only crown that this king would receive was a crown of thorns that was pressed down upon his head as blood streamed down his face. That's how the king of kings was going to enter into his kingdom. Not like man would think, but that's exactly what happened. No doubt their minds went back on the beatings and scourgings of Jesus, how his flesh was torn from his body, how they would bow the knee before him in utter mockery and disrespect, putting a purple robe on him and saying, Hail, King of the Jews, utter disrespect. And the height of disrespect as they spat in his face. What an awful thing. Beaten almost to death. Unable to bear his cross alone. And the Bible says another was compelled. Simon the Cyrenian, you remember, he was the one. And the Bible says that he helped to bear the cross of Jesus Christ. He was beaten almost to death. He was exhausted in every way. But he wasn't finished. And with a crown of thorns on his head, the purple robe removed from him, and his own garments are now back on him again, clinging to his, 
His bloody body, he's taken to Golgotha, Mount Calvary, where they laid him down on the ground and drove nails into his hands and feet and lifted him up and hoisted him down into that hole with all of the weight pulling and pressing on his hands and feet with crowns on, of thorns on his head. For six hours, there's still no answer. Wasn't this going to be the king? And how Jesus finally said, it is finished. And he says to his father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And Jesus gave up the ghost and he died on the cross. To the disciples, still no answer. He's taken down from the cross and he's buried. And three days he's in that tomb, in that sepulcher, with still no answer. And on this morning, when the women came to, to the sepulcher, they found that the stone was rolled away and the body of Jesus was gone. You see, Jesus had risen, but they didn't understand. You know, I would imagine all of these things are going through their minds. But as they're traveling along, and the Bible doesn't tell us how long they were walking. You know, you can walk fast. In fact, you can walk about two miles in 30 minutes if you'll walk briskly. You can actually cover about two miles if you briskly walk. I've done that. I've actually mapped it out, and I've actually uh, measured it with, a, with my truck, and I've actually walked it. If you walk briskly, you can knock out in 30 minutes or so about two miles. These men, I would imagine, weren't walking briskly for the purpose of exercise. They were walking along, no doubt, slowly, looking at each other, talking about these things. I don't know how long they walked until Jesus shows up on the scene. But Jesus comes on the scene. He is the visitor with them that day. And he's walking along with them. We're not told how long he was walking along. But he's walking along with him. And, they, and, and, and Jesus allows them to continue their discussion. And finally Jesus says, What manner of communications are these that you speak of and are sad? That's amazing to me. They said, Truly thou art a visitor. You couldn't have been around these parts. And you couldn't have been a visitor and been around Jerusalem over the last period of time. You couldn't have even been here and not know what we're talking about. And Jesus says, what things? What are the things? And they began to speak. They said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. One who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and in all the people. And how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and have crucified him. And then beginning in verse 21. But we trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And beside this, today is the third day since these things were done. Yea, and certain women also of our company made us astonished, which were early at the sepulcher. And when they found not his body, they came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels, which said that he was alive. And certain of them which were with us went to the sepulcher and found it even so as the women had said, but him they saw not. These were individuals, these two men, they were good men. They meant well. You know what the problem was? The problem with these two men was the same problem that we have in the world today. With good meaning, well-meaning people. They're, they meant well. Their heart was in the right place. Here's the problem. 
Their thinking was colored by the modern religious thinking of the day, and because of that, they were mistaken. I'm going to tell you something. There are some wonderful people in this world. There really is. You will find people today that believe various things religiously. They are such wonderful people. In fact, they are actually living a good life. I've met people, and so have you, I would imagine, that you basically look at them and think, you know, instant, instant Christian, just add water. They're living the life. But they're not worshiping properly. They've not been baptized into Christ for the remission of their sins. The problem is, even though they're good, well-meaning, wonderful folks, religious folks, their thinking was, is colored by the modern religious thinking of the day, and because of that, they are mistaken. That's these two men. They're thinking, they were looking at things from, the, from a physical standpoint. They didn't understand why Jesus wasn't the king yet. They had no idea. Their thinking was colored by the modern religious thinking of the day. They understood the prophecies about the Messiah to be fulfilled literally and not spiritually. And they were confused because now even the body of Jesus was gone, and even though they were confused, they still continued to talk about Jesus. And you know, Jesus allows them to unburden their aching hearts first. And then in verse number 25, here comes the rebuke. Then he said unto them, O fools and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not Christ to have suffered these things to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, this is a wonderful passage that shows that Jesus, he could have revealed himself to them in any way that he wanted to. And by the way, don't you think this was kind of a pretty big deal that the Lord would, the resurrected Christ would be walking along with these two disciples? I would imagine that's a big thing. You know what Jesus does? He doesn't miraculously make himself known to them. He doesn't even tell them that he's the one. He began with Moses and the prophets. He began with that. And the Bible says he went back to the scriptures and he talked about himself as the Messiah from the scriptures. You know, the Bible revolves around Jesus Christ. And Jesus is revealed to us in the Old Testament. That's what Jesus did. He used the Old Testament and revealed himself to them. Jesus is revealed to us in the Old Testament in three ways. We know what they are. I'll just mention them briefly. Number one, through types and shadows. In other words, pictures of things that were of old that would be a shadow of things to come. The word type means an imprint or a mark that is left by a blow. But if you don't know what made the mark, the only thing you would see is the shadow or the mark or imprint that the blow made. Under the old law and in the Old Testament, they didn't understand all the things that we now understand about the Lord. You know, it's amazing to me. I've heard people say, wouldn't it be great to have lived in the Bible times and the Old Testament times? Wouldn't it have been wonderful to live back there with all of those great men of old? I wouldn't trade when we live, where we live and how we live for anything in the world. The prophets would have loved to know the things that you and I know. 
The Bible says that these things are revealed to us and we can pick up this grand old book, look in the Old Testament all the way through the New and realize we now have a complete understanding of the entire plan of God. We know that. We don't, we're not just given types and shadows. We're given the imprint, the one that made the imprint being Jesus Christ. That's oftentimes referred to us as types and shadows of progressive revelation. It's like, uh, it's like picture revelation, little bits at a time. I'm grateful, though, we've been given the words that we understand now. Secondly, Jesus is referred to us or revealed to us in the Old Testament through brief and indirect flashes, like in Psalm 35 and verse 19. We also find a more detailed section in Isaiah chapter 53 where it would speak about Jesus being the Lamb of God and being despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and how he would die for our sins. Somebody asked one time, do you ever preach from the Old Testament? Absolutely, we preach from the Old Testament. We are bound by the laws that are given to us in the New Testament, but we believe in the Old Testament, as we say so many times, the things that were written aforetime were written for our learning. And in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, the King James Version says, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy, but to fulfill. You know, some translations render that, I believe, inaccurately. Some translations say, think not that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. Is that scriptural? I don't believe so. Did Jesus come to abolish the law and the prophets and do away with them? Yes, he did. In fact, the Bible says he took the old law and he nailed it to his cross. He ushered in a new way, a new plan. But he didn't come to destroy it. He was the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets too. He came to fulfill those things. Not to destroy them, but to fulfill them. After Jesus had expounded unto them these things, they came to the village of Emmaus. And the scripture says that Jesus makes like he's going to continue on. Now, I don't know if the village was off to the side there and these two men just peel off to the side and start heading down a little side road. I don't know. I don't know if the village was right there and their pathway that they were walking went right through the village. I don't know that either. All I know for absolute certain is they came to the village and these two disciples, Cleopas and whoever the other one was, they came to the village and they're going to stay there because it's home. Here's my point. I think it's a big point. The Bible says that Jesus and describes that Jesus does not go with them by his own will. He doesn't impart his will on them and he doesn't follow them without them constraining him and convincing him to go to their home with them. You know, that's kind of what Jesus does today. He stands at the door and knocks. We have to open the door. And the door, the handle of that door is on our side. We have to reach down and open it up if we want Jesus to be a part of our life. These two men make like they're going to continue to go on. They're going on to their place of abode. And Jesus is not going with them, but they constrained him. They says, come back and be with us. And you know what's interesting? They still have absolutely no idea that it's Jesus. All they know is they just heard a sermon. 
They were reminded of Old Testament scriptures about the law, of Mo about the law and the prophets, all the things that Moses even spoke of. Talked about types and shadows, understanding the spiritual significance of those prophecies of old. That's all they know. The Bible says as they came in to that place, Finally, Jesus reveals himself to them when he broke bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And then in verse number 31, their eyes were opened and they knew him and he vanished out of their sight. You know, I'm going to tell you something. This was a very significant day in their life. They have some answers now. The king that they saw hang on the cross taken down from the cross, buried, three days in there. Women came, stone rolled away, body of Jesus was gone. No answer. Now they've got an answer. And they know that the resurrected Christ was sitting right there with them. And he revealed himself in the breaking of bread, the Bible says. But you know what's interesting to me? He doesn't reveal himself prior to that time. In fact, they had an understanding about the resurrected Christ by the word of God. That's how they knew about the resurrected Christ. Look at the next verse. All the things, by the way, that they could have been impressed with. And what an impressive day. They just spent time with the Lord. They didn't know it was him. He, he magically, however it was, appears before them, and now he vanishes from their sight. You know what the very first thing they say is? I think this is a wonderful statement here. This is what they were impressed with the most. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us by the way and while he opened unto us the scriptures? Now, this is a very impressive day. But what they were impressed with the most is the fact that Jesus opened up the scriptures and the word of God is what they were impressed with. That is the foundation of our faith right there. It has to be on the word of God. Sometimes people are looking forward or looking for some kind of experience some kind of moving experience. And many times they want to think that an emotional feeling is the experience that they're after. Some people say that they want a Damascus Road experience. But you know, I'll tell you something. The Word of God is the only thing that produces faith. The Bible does say that. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The foundation of their faith and their understanding about the resurrected Christ was in the Scriptures and nothing else. Didn't our hearts burn within us when he showed us the scriptures along the way? Now, let me just say this. Sometimes we need to remind ourselves, we that have been members of the church all our lives, we need to remind ourselves in the greatness of the story, the greatest story ever told. Like the song we used to sing, I love to tell the story for some have never heard the message of salvation from God's own holy word. I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. And when in scenes of glory we sing the new, new song will be the old, old story that I have loved so long. Does the word of God still produce a burning in our hearts or do we just say, basically, well, we've heard it before and we grow tired of or calloused 
of the greatest story ever told. You know what these men did? These men heard the words of Jesus. What happened? It burned in their hearts, didn't it? Because he said it did. He said, didn't our hearts burn within us? What did they do? Go to bed, sleep a while, go the next day. They went immediately. So these, these two men, and I realize modes of, op, modes of travel back then were very primitive. I do understand that. But they still walked seven and three-quarter miles one way. And when they went back to Jerusalem from Emmaus, it's still another seven and three-quarters of a mile. But it was burning in their hearts so much so that they wouldn't be still. They were like Jeremiah, and it was burning in their bones, and they couldn't be still. They heard the words of God. They heard Jesus preach those words. It burned in their heart. It produced faith, and they went back immediately and told the others. Isn't that a picture of personal evangelism? That is a picture of personal evangelism. Hear the word of God. Have it produce faith and burn in our hearts, and then don't be still. Go tell everybody about it. That's what they did. Faith has to be developed on the Word of God. You know, there's an example of Peter in Matthew chapter 16 when Jesus would ask of uh, whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they had all manner of answers. But Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, because you didn't get it from flesh and blood. You got it from my father, which is in heaven. And I say also unto you that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The statement of fact that he had received from God's word, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. The foundation of that faithful statement was from God and not an experience. And that's how it needs to be. But guess what? In the very next chapter... Peter gets overwhelmed and overcome by an experience. On the Mount of Transfiguration, when the Bible says that Jesus' face did shine like the sun and Peter, James, and John were there as witnesses, and we also find that Moses and Elijah were there as visitors, what happened? In the 16th chapter, Jesus had just praised Peter that the things that he had said, that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, was words of God and not of man, and all of that was wonderful. Peter slips. He's overcome by this experience, and he says, I got a great idea. Let's build three tabernacles. Naturally, one for you, Lord, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. I believe, and you've heard me say this, and I'm, I'm certain that uh, I would imagine that we all feel the same way, that the only reason that Moses and Elijah was there is to show that Moses represented the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and Jesus was the focal point. He fulfilled both the law and the prophets. That was the only reason for Moses and Elijah to be there, I believe, not because they are to be worshipped or honored or revered or anything like that. What happened? What did God do? The Bible says that God's voice from heaven... Whatever it was and whatever it sounded like caused these men to fall down onto the ground, prostrate on the ground, and they were sore afraid. And the words of God were, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Hear him. What did God do? Turn their focus back on what the foundation of their faith needed to be, and that's the words of Jesus and not this experience. I'm going to tell you something, folks. If the foundation of our faith is on the proper ground, if the foundation of our faith is on the Word of God, 
then we can constantly have the Word of God preached and we can study from God's Word and we can have absolutely everything that we need in order to get to heaven. And spiritually speaking, how to be built up. Brother Billy Dickinson, holding the meeting up in Turlock, preached a wonderful sermon last night. And he was talking about coming back from or pulling yourself out of a recession. And he was talking about how that we have a recession today in our land. And he used that as an illustration. He talked about a stimulus package that the government gives to stimulate the economy so that we can pull ourselves out of this recession, giving us something back to help us along the way. And he talked about the great stimulus package that God has given his children. And he said this, sometimes we fall into a pit, sometimes we slide down, sometimes we get so discouraged, we don't know which way's up. And he says this, he says, and he pointed to all of us that were sitting over there with a number of preachers sitting there. He said, I'm going to tell you what, I'm going to get all these guys too. Just because we're preachers doesn't mean we're not human and doesn't mean we don't get discouraged because we all do. Every one of us, there's no difference. We are all the same. Being in the flesh and being a human being, we all have that frailty, and it's possible that we can grow weary and discouraged. He made a point, though. He said, you know, the two things that we've been given, the two things that we've been given to build us up and keep us pressing on are usually the things we turn our back on when we're the lowest. Number one is studying God's Word. A lot of times we feel down and we feel like we are being guided, mis misguided here and there, tossed to and fro, because we're not spending enough time with God's Word. It is not producing a burning in our hearts and cultivated so that we might grow spiritually. That's number one. And number two, it's because we're not praying enough. The great stimulus package, it's found in the Word of God. The Word of God has that which is producing our faith, and if we have a steady diet of the Word of God, we'll have the spiritual manna that we need to persevere to the end. But we need God. We need Him to listen to our prayers. We need to be able to bow before Him. And I'm not just talking about the times when we just have a quick prayer at, at mealtime or at night when we lay down real quick and we're tired at the end of the day, but we know we ought to say something. So we pray a little prayer to God. Nothing wrong with those prayers. I'm just saying. When's the last time that we have absolutely bowed before God privately in prayer and just poured our hearts out? The fervent prayer. Everything that we need, pouring our, our all out to God and talking to Him from the bottom of our hearts. If the Word of God is what produces faith, that's all we need to keep us going. That, prayer, and one more thing, each other. We need God through His Word. We need prayer to God. And we need each other. And if we do those things, we will persevere to the end. We'll get through whatever comes our way. We'll make heaven. And I guarantee you, regardless of whatever recession spiritually we go through, we will persevere and it will be worth it all. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at 
churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.